From Browncast Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. On this week's episode, I interview Dr. Schwartzberg for a second time. John Schwartzberg is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. We talk about the new Johnson & Johnson vaccine, new COVID-19 variants, the U.S.'s next steps, and more. Also, Wildlife Journal. We talk about stranded jellyfish on the U.S.'s west coast. Elsewhere, we're in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle, and we have a new website at newsnerdspodcast.com. I'm your host, Ezra Graham, and stay tuned, because after this, it's News Nerds. In just a second, we're going to go to my interview with Dr. John Swartzberg. He is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley in California. We talked to him for a previous episode of News Nerds on December 3rd, and he joins us again. But first, a message from me. listeners, I have some exciting news to share with you today. First, we're in the Bozeman Daily Chronicle. The Bozeman Daily Chronicle is a local newspaper in Montana. We're very excited to be in the Chronicle, and we'll share a link to that article in this week's show notes. Second, we have a new website. Our new website is so much easier to use than our old one. You can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other extras. You can even comment on those episodes. You can also subscribe to our mailing list and contact us there. Also, you can donate to the News Nerds podcast. It's easy and you can donate through our Patreon fund. That means that you ensure years of quality journalism from News Nerds in an unbiased fashion. I encourage you to check out our new website. And now let's go to my interview with Dr. John Swartzberg from UC Berkeley. Dr. John Swartzberg is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley. He joined us for a previous episode of News Nerds, and he joins me now. Welcome back to News Nerds, Dr. Swartzberg. Thank you very much. It's good to be back with you, Ezra. So let's start with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which was recently approved by the FDA and now is being distributed uh, across the United States. What are the pros and cons that you've seen with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Well, I really don't see very many cons, but I see a lot of pros. The pros, the first pro is that it, it is very efficacious. The numbers uh, don't line up very well as well with uh, Moderna and Pfizer, but maybe you and I can come back to that. But it's very efficacious in terms of preventing people from getting sick. And it seems to work incredibly well against preventing people from getting hospitalized or dying, which of course are the two major things we want to avoid, especially dying. So it's a very good effective vaccine. Another advantage of it is, or an advantage over the other vaccines is that it's one dose as opposed to two. That's a big deal. It's less expensive to produce 
than um, Pfizer or Moderna's vaccines, and that's great. It can be kept at refrigerator temperatures for prolonged periods of time, which means that travel is not an issue with this as opposed to Pfizer and Moderna. That's, that's terrific, a big advantage. But let's, let's come back, if it's okay with you, to talk about how you compare these three vaccines, the three approved vaccines. So Pfizer was the first to get approved. That's two shots, three weeks apart. Moderna was the second, two shots, four weeks apart. And, and uh, Johnson & Johnson, along with Janssen, uh, the pharmaceutical company, we'll just call it J&J, &J, that was the third to be approved not that long ago. And it's, as we were discussing, one shot. There's another vaccine that might be approved sometime this month or into next month, but it's the AstraZeneca vaccine. There is some reports of blood clotting in some European patients that have gotten the AstraZeneca vaccine because it's been approved there. Is there substantial evidence to support the claim that the AstraZeneca vaccine creates blood clotting? No, there was sufficient concern that blood clots did occur um, in patients who got the vaccine that it prompted a very careful look. And after that careful look, it appears that the people who got blood clots were no greater than the people who didn't get the vaccine who would get blood clots. That is the same percentage over time of people that get blood clots uh, were no different than people who got vaccinated versus those who didn't. And because of that, we've continued to use AstraZeneca vaccine. So I feel comfortable that we've looked at that and it's something we'll continue to look at, but uh, there's not good evidence now that the vaccine causes blood clots. So there's a new report uh, also about AstraZeneca that says the vaccine is effective. How does that change the United States view on the vaccine and how will that affect the FDA's decision to either approve or uh, not approve it? Right. Well, everything is up in the air about how effective it is. Two days ago, AstraZeneca issued a press release that the vaccine was 79% effective, which was higher than a lot of people thought it would be, but that was very good to see. Effective in preventing serious illness. And it was 100% effective in preventing hospitalization and death. Great. But in vaccine trials, the US government or at least vaccine trials that are being approved in the United States or wanting to be approved in the United States, the US government has an independent monitoring agency. And they've been monitoring AstraZeneca's results. And after AstraZeneca two days ago announced in that press release what their results were, a very unusual thing happened. I've never seen this happen before, but that committee, that independent committee, sent a letter to AstraZeneca saying that they're very concerned that AstraZeneca wasn't accurately presenting the efficacy data. They were satisfied apparently about the safety data, but they were not satisfied about the efficacy data. And as I said, I've never seen uh, the, that committee do that publicly before. 
So it really raises some concerns about AstraZeneca in terms of how accurately the data is being reported to the public. So, you know, it's important to go back, I think, to last summer, late summer, early fall, AstraZeneca initially reported their data and it was very confusing because they said that the vaccine worked better if you got a half dose the first time and a full dose the second time as opposed to a full dose both taught for both doses. That didn't make any sense. And what was disturbing was that the reason why they used a half dose in some of the trial patients for the first dose was a mistake. They had miscalculated and they gave a half dose as opposed to a full dose. That was an egregious error, not dangerous, but just sloppy. And then when they presented their data to the FDA, the FDA said that they wanted to see data here in the United States because all the data they had was had been done in other countries. So AstraZeneca did their trial here in the United States and those are the results we just saw. And then they presented publicly and then they're publicly called into question about how accurate they're how accurately they're presenting the data. So we'll know more in about 48 hours because we'll see more data, but you know, they've stumbled a couple times now, big time. And that worries me. So we've just talked about two of the vaccines. There's two others that have been approved, the Pfizer and Moderna. How do these four vaccines compare to each other? Well, we, we can't comment about AstraZeneca yet because they, it hasn't been, um, we just don't know their data and we don't even know how reliable it is. Fortunately, we have very reliable data from Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson, J&J. The study designed for Moderna and Pfizer, which are very similar vaccines, they're, uh, they're made essentially almost identically. <clears throat> they're what are called messenger RNA vaccines or mRNA vaccines. The, the studies were done last summer. Uh, the designs were, as I said, very similar and the results were nearly identical. And when you and I last talked, we talked about how those results were just outstanding. Uh, 94, 95% efficacy. Nobody dying and only one person got hospitalized. It's incredible data. Johnson & Johnson, J&J &J did their study at a different time in the year. They did their study primarily in the late fall and winter. And during the late fall and winter, everybody remembers how that horrible surge that we had in cases. And so the epidemiology of disease was very different compared to summertime when Moderna and Pfizer did their study. Also the time when J&J &J did their study, there were variants circulating and there were no variants circulating when Moderna and Pfizer did their study. And finally, when J&J &J did their study, they had different designs with different endpoints. The bottom line to all of that is you can't compare the numbers that J&J &J got for efficacy with Moderna and Pfizer. So I advise people not to look at the numbers because they're not, you can't really compare them. And just look at what we want to achieve. And that is, does it prevent disease? They all three do a very good job at that. Does it prevent you from winding up in the hospital? Well, yes, they all do, except there was one case in the Moderna trial that 
that have to be hospitalized. Did they prevent death? In all the patients studied, no one died. And we're talking about over 100,000 people. So pretty incredible. Um, so I think I, what I would say, Ezra, is that all three of these vaccines are really far exceeded anybody's expectations. They work very well. And that I would just take whatever vaccine I can get. In comparison to other vaccines that Americans get, like uh, measles, mumps, rubella, chickenpox, smallpox, how do those vaccine efficacy compare to these new COVID vaccines? Right. Well, with the exception of measles, these vaccines um, compare very, very well. And as a matter of fact, we don't know yet how well they're going to compare with measles, but they may even be comparable to measles, which is our best vaccine. Um, they're much better. The influenza vaccine, which is very valuable, is on average about 50% efficacious. The um, mumps vaccine, probably around 80, 85% efficacious. The measles is about 95%, which is, as I said, the best one. The chickenpox one is very good, probably, probably comparable to Moderna and Pfizer and J&J. So I'd say that these vaccines are amongst the best in terms of their efficacy. That's great news. Let's go on to talking about the variants that have popped up over the winter after we talked. So what is known about whether or not the new variants that have been identified, some from Brazil, some from England and other places, what is known to see if they are more deadly than the original, uh, original SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 strain? Well, the original strain, which was entered the United States probably early last uh, year ago, last January, January of 20, was replaced by another strain called D614G sometime in the late spring. So we don't even see the original strain that, that started this whole thing off anymore. It's been replaced by a variant called D614G. And then D614G has been the dominant strain uh, and continues to be since late spring. In um, probably sometime around October in the world, we saw a new variant, B117, which is, was seen in the United Kingdom. And that's what caused so many cases in the UK and it's been here in the United States for several months. I'd like to come back to that because that's the most important one right now. But since then, we've also seen new strains pop up in South Africa called B1351 and a new strain pop up in Brazil called P1 and also P2. And then we've seen two new strains pop up in my home state, California, very similar ones called C20. They're we lumped them together as C20. And then a new strain popping up in New York City. So we have some homegrown ones and we have some foreign ones. All of these strains have been now found in the United States. But besides B117, we haven't seen very many of the other strains, foreign strains. Uh, homegrown strains, we've seen quite a few. Uh, they're, they're becoming dominant in New York City, the one from there. California, there are quite a few in this state and they seem to be growing and they're popping up in other, many other states. 
But the most prominent one is B117. That's the one that contributed to the terrible time that the United Kingdom had in December and January. That was the one that was first identified in Colorado, I believe. Right, right. So that one is really taking over. And it looks like it, it, it's doubling in the number of people it infects every nine or 10 days. And it looks like it's going to become the dominant strain and replace D614G within the next very few weeks. Wow. I know. And that strain is about 50% more transmissible than D614G. That's very worrisome. It means it can spread about 50% more easily. And there's some data, not a lot, but there's some data that suggests that it makes people sicker and may increase the mortality rate. We're not sure about that yet. The good news with that strain is that our current vaccines give us immunity that works very well against it. So that's good news if you're vaccinated. So that's our biggest current worry, but the uh, strain out of the United, uh, out of Brazil, the strains out of Brazil, the strains out of uh, South Africa, the homegrown strains from California and New York, those um, are also of considerable concern. So we've got quite a few variants out there. And, and you know, new variants are going to continue to pop up as long as people are uh, not immune to the virus. That's why we need to get people vaccinated so quickly. How do viruses create variants of themselves? So what happens is, let's say that I've never been vaccinated and I get infected with the virus. It starts multiplying within my body and it produces billions of new viral particles, billions. And when it replicates, it may make a mistake in the replication. It may substitute one amino acid for another in its RNA structure. <clears throat> RNA is going to dictate what the virus looks like in terms of its proteins on its surface, its structure. Well, the vast majority of times that that abnormal strain is created by mistake, it's not helpful to the virus and just dies off. But on rare occasion, it turns out to be very helpful to the virus. That is, it may make it transmit more easily. It may make it um, cause more replication in the person and therefore produce more viral particles. It could do a variety of things that are advantageous. And even though it is a very rare event when you're producing, one person can produce billions of viral particles, you can see that a rare event occurs not that uncommonly. So that's where these variants come from. And that's why if you have everybody immune, that we are no longer factories for producing variants. What is the volume of cases in the United States that are caused by these new variants, the ones that are foreign and the ones that we have uh, made here in California and New York? We don't know. And the reason why we don't know is because we're not testing for them enough. In December and January, we were testing for about one, we were testing about one out of every 1,000 isolates. Since 
concern has been raised about these variants, we've been testing now, we're up to about 3%, three out of 100. And most people think, most epidemiologists think that we're gonna to need to be testing maybe five, a minimum of five out of 100 to get a good sense of how, how prevalent these strains are in the United States. You know, the UK has been testing about, for over a year, it has been testing about 10% of all of their isolates. So the UK has done a great job with this. The United States just really dropped the ball, but we're now picking up steam. So the next time we talk in a few months, maybe um, I'll have an answer for you, but right now we just don't know. I can give you some preliminary guesses uh, the one, clearly, I think everybody would agree that the strain that is being isolated far and away the most frequently is B117, the UK strain. And, and as I said, that's going to become dominant. So uh, that's, that's, I think we know that. But we don't know about the, how prevalent the California strains or the New York strains or the Brazilian strains or the South African strains how, how prevalent they are in our society. They haven't been, they haven't been found very often, at least the uh, Brazilian and, and uh, South African. And as I mentioned in New York City, it's been found pretty frequently, the New York strain. And California has been found, I think, in about 24 states now. But it doesn't appear to be out competing the UK strain, B117. So there is going to be a new WHO report that will be released, I think, next week. It was delayed a week. But this report will uh, report the WHO's findings on the origins of COVID-19. And if any of my listeners are not familiar with it, they should go check it out. So what is, in, what is going to be in this new report? Well, I can only guess because I've heard, of, I've heard a few leaks about it and I've been following the story pretty carefully. It's likely that the new report is going to say that um, the virus began in China. It's likely the report's going to say that probably originated in bats, and then it spread to a variety of animals, and from those animals it spread to humans. The report will not be definitive, that is it can't say for sure where it began, and other hypotheses about where it may have begun are being, are entertained and are being looked at. But it's likely that the report's going to suggest, or be strongly in favor of the fact that it did jump from bats, probably to an intermediate host, other animals, and then to humans. Now, it'll be interesting to see how far the report goes in terms of how did that jump from other intermediate, they may intermediate hosts, other animals to humans? Where did that take place? One of the ideas is that there are wildlife farms that China has. They've had for, I think, over two decades um, where they raise wild animals that, that are sold and purchased in wet, what are called wet markets. And it may be that the virus jumped from bats to those animals in captivity and then were moved to wet markets where they were purchased by people and that's where they jumped to humans. But we're not certain. I don't know if this question would be in your area of expertise, but do you know why bats uh, are the home to so many 
uh, of these diseases like coronaviruses. So do you know why they're often reservoir hosts for these new diseases? Well, the, I know a little bit about this. You know, bats are mammals like human beings. And <clears throat> their immune system has considerable similarities to humans. And so it's not surprising that as bats get infected and these viruses multiply within them in billions of numbers, that variants will be produced regularly. Uh, bats don't come into contact with humans very much though. So most of the diseases from bats seem to come from bats to what we call an intermediate host, another animal. And from that host that does come into contact with humans is how we get it. So we saw, for example, with SARS back in 2001-2, um, that that jumped from bats to cat-like animal called civets to humans. And we saw with MERS in 2014 that Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, also a coronavirus, that that jumped from bats to camels to humans. So bats, I think it's because of their there's similarities in the immune system, that they're mammals, and those are probably the two major reasons why we frequently see that association. To end our interview, I would like to ask two questions about the United States' next step in this pandemic. What is the government's next step to diminish vaccine hesitancy? Well, the back in the polio, pandemic, pandemics. Uh, in the 1950s, there, there was a not-for-profit organization called the Ad Council that was formed. And the Ad Council did a lot of promoting of the vaccines for polio, and it was very successful. And since then, the Ad Council has been used widely to promote public health measures like vaccines. And the Ad Council is Will, is just now starting to turn out a, a variety of um, promotional material to support the use of vaccines. So I think that will be very helpful. You know, vaccine hesitancy, Ezra, is really a, a, it's not one thing. It's understandable why people are hesitant because the vaccines are new. It's understandable why people are hesitant because the vaccines were developed in record time. And to really not be hesitant means you have to do your homework and you have to understand why even though they were developed so quickly they didn't miss a beat in terms of efficacy and safety trials and you have to do your homework carefully to know how safe these vaccines are and what the risks are which appear to be very very low but they're not completely safe no vaccine is completely safe no anything is completely safe. So I think that people are hesitant understandably for that reason, but I think with education, um, people will learn about it and lose their hesitancy when they see that how efficacious it is and how it's helping people stay alive and not get sick. There are other people who are hesitant because they distrust public health and they distrust medicine. And for some of these people, it's, it's, it's just paranoia. 
But for a large group of people, that is African Americans in this country, it's very understandable that they're hesitant because of the way public health and medicine over the centuries has treated them. There's a very infamous study that a lot of people have heard of by the US Public Health Service that began in 1932 and ended in 1972 called the Tuskegee study. It was about syphilis. And for over half of the study, we had a drug that cured people with syphilis, but it was never given to the participants. These were all black men from Tuskegee, Alabama. That's one of many examples of where uh, the African-American community has been really abused by American medicine and American, America's public health. And so now with this new pandemic and these new vaccines created, you can see where the African-American community might be very hesitant. Um, fortunately, um, the most recent data I've seen is suggesting that, um, uh, that their hesitancy is being overcome, which is very good to hear. So I guess what I'm saying is that there's lots of different reasons for hesitancy. And so the problem has to be attacked in multiple levels. One of the biggest problems with vaccine hesitancy is, is the promotional material or the material that's put out by anti-vaxxers and by other people with really distorted ideas about vaccines. And it's, it's misinformation and yet it's readily available. And so when people surf the net and they find this, it makes them question things, which is understandable, but people have to recognize that just because things are on the World Wide Web doesn't mean they're accurate or responsible. And so it's very imperative that people look at sites that they can trust. To end our interview, I'd like to ask what uh, the current government should do to prepare future governments for pandemics and epidemics in the future? Sure. Well, what we have to do is stop doing what we've done for the last three plus decades, and that is we have to adequately fund public health. For over three decades, public health has been underfunded in the United States terribly. So we were very unprepared. We have great people in public health, but very few. And that's every state in the United States. So that's number one. Number two, a vaccine preparedness plan was put together during the Bush W administration and developed further during the Obama administration and was essentially shelved during the Trump administration. So we need a vaccine preparedness plan that is both viable, up to date, and can be pulled immediately off the shelf. The third thing we have to do is we have to, to be an active participant with the World Health Organization. And we have to, through the World Health Organization, develop early, early warning systems. Uh, that is so we can identify these variants that, for example, come from bats to humans, and we can identify them more quickly so that we can stamp them out before they take hold like SARS-CoV-2 has done. So we need a robust early warning system, just like we have an early warning system for atomic warfare. So that needs to be developed. We need to have a healthcare system in the United States, as opposed to a non-system or a, what's called a balkanized system of independent ways that healthcare is delivered throughout the United States in hundreds and hundreds, or actually thousands and thousands of different ways. That doesn't work in a pandemic. And 
we also need to have a, a federal response to a pandemic as opposed to having the states independently have their own response. Currently, the states determine how they're going to respond to the pandemic. That just doesn't make sense when the virus doesn't respect state borders. It's going to cross state borders. So we have to have consistently applied public health preventative measures. So we have to relook at our public health laws, the federal versus the state laws. I think if we could accomplish all those things, um, we'd likely, we will be in better shape for the next pandemic. And it's important to remember that SARS-CoV-2, COVID, is the fourth pandemic in the 21st century, or it's the fourth pandemic in 20 years. So we're going to be seeing a lot more pandemics, and we better be prepared. Thank you, Dr. Schwartzberg, for joining me again. You're welcome, Ezra. Thank you for inviting me. That was Dr. John Schwartzberg. He is the clinical professor at the School of Public Health at UC Berkeley in California. Cruising through the sea, the by-the-wind sailor jellyfish takes advantage of the wind with its billowy sail. But is the sail always to the jellyfish's advantage? Every year, the by-the-wind sailor jellyfish washes up on beaches because of the wind. I myself have seen this when I traveled to Portugal two years ago. Beaches there were covered with misplaced jellyfish. Eventually, the jellyfish die out of the water. This process happens every year when the wind chains course, but lately millions of jellyfish are watched up, like in 2006. These high numbers of stranded jellyfish are uncommon, so why is this happening? Julia Parrish is a University of Washington professor. Along with her colleagues, Parrish analyzed 20 years of by-the-wind sailor jellyfish observations. Their data targeted the west coast of the United States. Their work was helped along by the COASST, or the Coastal Observation and Seabird Survey Team. Data from the COASST showed 500 reports of more jellyfish on almost 300 beaches. A peak in these sightings from 2015 to 2019 was also found. To understand the dying of the jellyfish, Parrish turned to a phenomenon called the blob. The blob is another name for the warming of the Pacific Ocean. The blob has killed animals like sea lions, whales, and seabirds. But if the Pacific continues to warm, there is an upside for the by-the-wind sailor jellyfish. Warmer temperatures mean a longer spawning season for fish like anchovies, which these jellyfish eat. That means more food for the jellyfish and, as a result, more jellyfish. Parrish thinks that this increase in the by-the-wind sailor jellyfish population accounts for the immense volume in stranded jellyfish. 
Quote, a changing climate creates new winners and losers in every ecosystem, Parrish said in a statement. What's scary is that we're actually documenting that change. Let's now go to the News Nerds Geographical Location Challenge. Let's start internationally. With first place, we have the United States with 97% of all News Nerds listeners. Second place goes to Norway with 2% of all News Nerds listeners. We have a bunch of runners-up for third place. They all have less than 1% of all News Nerds listeners. Canada, Australia, the United Kingdom, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and for the first time, India. France, the Philippines, Switzerland, and Germany. Now let's go to the United States challenge. With first place, it is Virginia with 17% of all News Nerds listeners. Second place this week goes to Ohio with 8%. And third place this week goes to California with 6% of all News Nerds listeners. And Washington just got bumped from our list. That's not very good at all for our Washington listeners. So Washington listeners, step up the game and call your friends about news nerds so you can be on our top three. That's it for this Geographical Location Challenge. Let's go to Boston to check into the COVID-19 dashboard by the Center for Systems Science and Engineering at Johns Hopkins University. Let's now start with the global cases of COVID-19, which now stand out at about 124.5 million confirmed global cases. And cases by country, we start with the United States with the most cases by country with about 30 million confirmed cases. With second most cases by country is Brazil with about 12 million confirmed cases and India has the third most cases by country with 11 million. And now let's go to global deaths. Worldwide there are about 2.7 million confirmed global deaths because of COVID-19. The United States has the most global deaths out of any other country with 545,000 deaths. And in Brazil, they have 298,000 deaths. And in Mexico, there are about 200,000 confirmed deaths. That's it for By the Numbers.
that's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. On this week's episode, I was your host. I'm Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to News Nerds on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and please become a subscriber on those three sites. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, bye-bye.